0: Now, as we approach the end of the Gospel of John, we have only a few of these truly, truly statements left to discuss. So last week we read John 14, where Jesus gave his troubled disciples five pieces of truly, truly good news. First, he promised them that though he is leaving now, one day they will be with him again. Number two, he pointed out the only way to the Father's presence, which was him. Number three, he reminded them of the privilege they have of praying in his name. Number four, Jesus taught them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then number five, Jesus pronounced Satan's ultimate defeat, that Satan has no claim on him. Now, this is good news, not just for the disciples back then, but for all who trust and obey Jesus now. Those five pieces of good news apply to you and me just as much as they did to those original disciples. But today we pick up in chapter 16, where we find the 23rd and 24th truly, truly statements in John's gospel. As Joshua mentioned, chapter 15 features that memorable vine and branches passage where Jesus teaches his disciples that we must abide in him if we hope to bear good fruit. And I'm glad Joshua mentioned that because it's difficult to preach from the gospel of John and not be in John 15. So thank you for that, Joshua. But then Jesus warns his disciples of the very real threat of persecution for their faith. No wonder they need to abide in Jesus if the world is going to hate them. He says that if the world hated him, the world will hate his followers as well. And then last, Jesus once again tells us who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit will do. Jesus clearly thought that was important. Now, with that quick summary in mind, we'll start reading this morning in John 16, verse 16, And the context is still mostly the same. Jesus is still preparing his disciples for his departure. As we mentioned last week, chapters 13 through 16 in John are really just one extended conversation. Now, these 11 men, Judas is now out of the picture, have been with Jesus for three years now. Hardly ever leaving his side. They abandoned everything to follow him. They left homes. They left careers. They left families. But now he's going away. So what in the world is life going to be like for these disciples when Jesus is gone? So open up to John chapter 16 verse 16. Feel free to follow along as we go. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one of ours home. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Thank you that even when it's cold and gray and snowy outside, uh, we can come in here and sing your praises And regardless of what changes out there, uh, the same thing happens each Sunday in here. And I thank you for that gift. I pray that our worship today would be honoring to you. Uh, I pray that you would be with our hearts and our minds and our ears as we hear from your word and help us not just be something that we think about, talk about, study on Sunday morning, but rather that we would take what we hear from your word this morning and Bring it with us in all the places that we go. I pray that your word would not just educate us in our heads, uh, but that your word would equip us to live as the people you call us to be, to live as the people you've made us to be by your grace, justified by your son, Jesus, and filled with your spirit. So Lord, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these people in this place and this time we have together. We ask this all in Jesus name. Amen. All right, starting in John chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus says a little while and you will see me no longer and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me and because I am going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. So what does Jesus mean in that almost riddle-like statement in verse 16? Well, the first half is relatively easy. In a little while, Jesus is going away to his death. He'll be lifted up, crucified, in just a matter of ours. Now, how can the disciples not understand this by now? Well, there may be a number of reasons for that, but one of them is surely this. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And the Messiah is not supposed to die. Plain and simple. In their imaginations, the Messiah doesn't get crucified. And if someone who claims to be the Messiah does end up getting crucified, then guess what that proves? Well, that probably proves that they just weren't the Messiah. Even in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus is much more direct in his predictions of his death, the disciples simply could not fathom the idea that Jesus was about to die. The suggestion that in just a little while, the Messiah would die on a cross like a criminal and they would no longer see him was patently absurd. They just couldn't wrap their minds around it. But that's exactly what Jesus means here. In a little while, he's going away to his death. Now, if the first half is relatively clear, the second half might be a bit trickier. What's the second little while of verse 16 referring to? When will the disciples see Jesus again? Some wonder if Jesus is talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. As we've mentioned, Jesus has talked a lot about that lately. Others wonder if this is referring to the end of the age itself. The final day when Jesus returns as king and judge once and for all. Still others think it's a little bit easier than all of that. Jesus is simply referring to his post-resurrection appearances to the disciples. Well, it's possible that Jesus is being intentionally vague and could have all three of those in mind. But the last option seems to be the best. In a little while, after Jesus goes away in his death, the disciples will see him again alive. So pretty soon, Jesus will be gone. Crucified, dead, buried, end of story, right? Well, not exactly. Because not long after that, three days, give or take, The disciples will see him alive again. But what does all of this mean for the disciples? And what does it mean for their future? What does it mean for us and for our future? For that, we keep reading. Verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying... A little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus' death would be nothing short of traumatic for the disciples. They would be devastated, emotionally devastated, because they lost their closest friend and teacher. Practically devastated because they had put all their eggs in this basket and it now appears to have been for nothing. Again, Messiahs don't die. And they'd be spiritually devastated because all of those hopes they placed upon Jesus's shoulders would be crushed. This would be a time of unspeakable grief for the disciples even though the rest of the world would seem unbothered or even pleased by what took place. But Jesus then claims that the disciples' sorrow would turn into joy. In just a little while, they would be celebrating. How is that possible? One word. resurrection. Their master would live again. And when he did, their decision to leave everything and follow Jesus would be vindicated. Jesus would finally prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is the son of God. All the disciples' hopes, dreams, and expectations revolve around that one word. resurrection. Now, Jesus compares this dramatic, emotional roller coaster the disciples are about to experience to a woman in labor. And if you're a woman in the room and you think no man can speak of the experience of labor, you are right, except for Jesus. Jesus knows everything. He can talk about it. I can't. Now, along those lines, I've never given birth. You knew that. However, I've watched my wife do it three times, and I should add that I didn't pass out a single time, and I'll be honest, having watched that three separate times, it looks uncomfortable. (laughs) With our oldest especially, a faulty epidural meant that Olivia got a much fuller taste of the pain of childbirth than she did with the younger two. But when Jabin was born, we both cried tears of joy. And I know it's easy for me to say, but I think Olivia would agree with me, that the reward was worth the suffering. In the same way, when their Lord dies, the disciples will experience more anguish than they had ever known. But then in just a little while, when they see him again, Their newfound joy will drastically outweigh their previous sorrow. Jesus' resurrection will truly change everything. First, when the disciples see the risen Christ, everything that Jesus has been saying this entire time will finally start to make sense. That's what verse 23 is talking about. When Jesus says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. When Jesus is raised from the dead, the disciples will no longer ask the kinds of questions they had to ask back in verses 17 and 18. What is he saying? We have no idea what he means. Those questions won't come up anymore. Now, will the disciples know everything? No. As we'll see next week, Peter will still have questions for the risen Christ. The same is true in the first chapter of Acts, before Jesus ascends. The disciples are asking him questions. But it's also true that when Jesus rises from the dead, everything he's been teaching his disciples that they haven't understood will finally start to come together. It will finally start to click. On top of that, after Jesus rises from the dead, the disciples will have a new kind of access to God the Father. That truly, truly statement in the second half of verse 23 going into verse 24 is likely referring back to prayer. It sounds similar to what we read last week in John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. But there is one difference between last week and this week. Last week, the focus was on praying to Jesus. This week, the focus is on praying directly to the Father. After Jesus died and rose from the dead, his disciples, then and now, you and me, were granted an access to God that we could have never had otherwise. Jesus' death and resurrection allows sinners like us to approach the Holy God with confidence. Yes, Jesus is our mediator. The New Testament makes that clear in multiple places. We come into God's presence and prayer through Jesus, thanks to Jesus, and because of Jesus. But don't forget what Jesus says in verse 27. The father himself loves you. The father himself loves you. God does not begrudgingly welcome us into his presence only because he has to since we believe in his son. You're not the slightly annoying neighbor kid who's only welcome in God's house because you're friends with his kid. If you trust and obey Jesus, you're not just on good terms with the son. You're on good terms with the father. And as Jesus has said in the past few chapters, you're also indwelt by the spirit. Now, How does this happen? Back to that one word. Resurrection. Verse twenty nine. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So the disciples think they get it now. All they needed was for Jesus to stop talking like Yoda. Maybe not quite. Because where the rubber meets the road. When Jesus is actually arrested in chapter 18. And makes it clear that he has no intention of getting himself out of this mess. The disciples supposed faith. And supposed understanding. Will be put to the test. And when that happens. Once the cross really comes into view, the disciples fail. They scatter like rats on a sinking ship, just as Jesus said they would. But as we'll see next week, the disciples' failure will not be final. Why? How? You guessed it. Resurrection. So hopefully by now you've identified the key theme of this sermon. Jesus' resurrection truly does change everything for the disciples. Their sorrow turns into joy. Their confusion turns into understanding. Their alienation from God turns into access to God. And in the book of Acts, their cowardice turns into courage. Now, all that being said, even after Jesus defeats death, death will still eventually come for his disciples. It will still eventually come for you and me. But we don't have to fear death the way we once did. Though death still has power over us in this life, it has no power over us in eternity. Because the resurrection changes everything. Admittedly, not all of Jesus' words in John 16 apply to us in the same way that they applied to his original disciples. I mean, think about it. They had to live three long days where their Lord was dead and buried. We've never lived a day in our lives in which Jesus was not alive and kicking. And we never will. Thankfully, we will never have that experience of mourning over Jesus's occupied tomb the way they did. But Jesus's words can still be helpful to us in our times of sorrow. Jesus warned his disciples in verse 33 that they would have times of tribulation. And we know the same is true for us. But there is one word that can make us joyful even in the midst of profound sorrow. One word that can help us make sense of the difficult questions of life in a fallen world. One word that can remind us that the Father himself loves us in the midst of our sufferings. And that word is resurrection. It's long been observed within the Christian faith that happiness and joy are not the same thing. And it's true. Happiness is more of a fleeting feeling. And it depends upon subjective outside circumstances. Meanwhile, joy is a more permanent disposition. Dependent upon objective truth that does not change. Christians do not always have to be happy. There's a healthy place for mourning, lament, and even complaint within our faith. But Christians do always have reason to be joyful. When we lose our jobs, receive a frightening diagnosis... Experience an unexpected divorce, lose someone we love, when a chronic illness beats us down, or when we agonize over the self-destructive choices of a wayward child, Christians don't have to pretend that we're happy. But in those moments, we still can be, and we still should be, joyful. Why? How? One word, resurrection. No matter what happens to us, nothing changes the fact that Jesus' tomb is empty. Thus, we can be joyful. We can know that one day everything will finally make sense. And we can find comfort in knowing that the Father himself loves us as sure as Jesus' resurrection. In 2 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul goes through a long list of hardships and sufferings and pains and labors and difficulties. But he says in the second half of verse 8, We are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, As dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. When you think about it, we Christians are in a strange position. In a sense, we're living in two very different worlds at the same time. A world where Jesus has risen from the dead. But also a world where we're waiting for Jesus to return. On the one hand, Paul says in Philippians 3, that our citizenship is in heaven. But on the other hand, we are still walking on earth. On the one hand, we know our world has fallen. But on the other hand, we believe God's kingdom has, in a sense, already come. On the one hand, sin, death, and Satan still cause us great sorrow. But on the other hand, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection give us reason for great joy. Now, thankfully, we only have to walk this tightrope, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, for a little while before we see Jesus face to face. And as we do it, we remember that one day everything will make sense. We remember that the Father himself loves us. So we take heart. We have peace. In his death and in his resurrection, Jesus has overcome the world that gives us so much tribulation. And if you need the occasional reminder of that. In those moments when it feels like the world is overcoming you. And you have lots of reason for sorrow and little reason for joy. Remember the one word that changes everything. Remember the word resurrection. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for your word. Thank you that in this word that you've given us, we have four different accounts of Jesus' resurrection from different angles and different perspectives and different emphases with different details. And they all come together to give us this beautiful picture of Jesus' resurrection, of Jesus' death that preceded it. And thank you that we have this full image. Of Jesus' resurrection, because the resurrection really does change everything. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are pathetic, we are hopeless, we are pitiful. But we know that Jesus did rise from the dead. And because of that, we can press on in faith. Because of that, we can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We don't have to be happy all the time. But we can be joyful because the tomb is empty. So regardless of what happens to us, regardless of what happens around us, help us be joyful. In this little while that we have while we're away from you, in a sense, help us be joyful. Because we know in just a little while longer, we will see you. I pray that you would sustain us and preserve us until that day comes that we would be joyful people in a world that is full of sorrow, in a world that is full of pain, in a world that is full of suffering. May we be beacons of a peace that surpasses all understanding, that comes from Christ and from Christ alone. And I pray the world would see that and be interested in it and be attracted to it and drawn to it. And I pray that we would share it. So, Lord, again, as we navigate this world, in a sense, being away from you, I pray that we would look forward to just a little while longer when we are with you again, that we would be faithful and that we would even be joyful as we face tribulation of all kinds. We love you. We honor you. We worship you. We thank you for your death. And of course, Lord, we thank you for your resurrection. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.